Right, go ahead, have a seat today. Uh, ushers, let's come forward. Let's give out of how God has given to us. It's all from him. It's all for him. Uh, we're thankful for that today. If you're here for the first, second, or third time, you got that connection card as you walked in. Uh, you do not need to get that filled out before the baskets get to you. You've got the rest of the service to do that. And as you head out today, once you get outside, there's going to be some really nice people on your right, and they have a gift for you. It's not a Costco-sized teddy bear. Uh, it's something you can carry with you as you walk home or as you walk back to your car today. Just our way of saying thanks so much for being with us today. So we're continuing our rampage through uh, 1 Timothy. We started it last week in chapter 1. This week we're moving on to chapter 2. There's six chapters. We'll be in it for six weeks. And the first thing that we're going to see today is this idea of living out the truth, which has been our goal for 1 Timothy, like what we're looking at, how we translate what was written thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away to our life right here today, is the first thing is that living out the truth is going to cause us to be different. It's going to cause us to stick out from whatever we see around us. And it's going to take effort. It's not something that we can just kind of slide into and be normal in. It's something that's going to cause us to, to actually have to do stuff differently. And the way that, that I'm choosing to like have us keep our minds on this uh, is this thing right here today. So this is not a uh, clothes holder. That's called the closet. Uh, this is supposed to be a weight bench, but for so many of us in our lives, we buy fitness stuff or we have plans to be more active, and what those plans turn into is just something to hold laundry. And so what we're looking at today is we're going to look at a number of areas where our lives as Jesus followers get pushed into action, get pushed into effort. So for us to be active, for most of us, unless you're 12 and you still run everywhere just for fun, being active is something that takes effort. Working out is something that takes effort. Using your weight bench as, as a laundry holder is not really effort. Like, that's just using what's already there. But for us to be active, unless you're 12 and you still run everywhere, that means that we have to do things that are going to make us approach life differently. And so what we're going to end with today are a few things where we don't want to look like this, where we don't want to just be kind of there. Uh, but we want to be living our lives differently in some areas that God has that are going to make us stick out as unique, especially this week. Uh, and the first one of those, the first thing right away, is that we're going to approach people differently because our lives are fueled by prayer. We're going to approach people differently because our lives are fueled with prayer. Because if we, if we start with different, that means that there's a before that happened. And as we look at 1 Timothy, we see a book that a guy named Paul wrote to a church that had started doing things wrong. Uh, he's correcting what they're doing. And so every chapter, every verse, uh, there's something where he's writing to correct what's gone wrong. He's correcting this type of thing into a lifestyle that has effort behind it, that's pushing people toward activity. And for the next few weeks, everything's kind of pointing toward uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, where he really lays out like the thesis of what he's doing in the middle of the book. And he says, he says I'm writing these things to you so that you will know so that you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. So as us as Christians go through life, we're going to encounter everything. We're going to approach everything differently because we're doing life in God's house. Every house that you go to is going to have rules. One of the most notable ones, one of those things that's easiest to notice is what do you do with your shoes right away when you walk in? Our house is a wear shoes everywhere house. Other houses, it's like take them off before you even get in. You walk into the house, and if there's a pile of shoes, you know what the rule is for that house. And so what Paul is doing is he's laying out some house rules for how we're going to be different as we go through life. Ways that are going to take effort, but is going to make us different as people. 
God came to change everything about us. When Jesus moved in the world, he moved in to bring change in all of us, to take over everything. There's one point where, where Jesus is having a conversation with someone, and he said the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means everything is now under God's control, and everything gets run through that filter of what does Jesus want me to do here. And here he's saying right away that from the very beginning, you're going to approach people differently because you're fueled by prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Because prayer is the conversation part of our love relationship with God. He's saying, I want you to pray for all people. That means that when we're praying for people, we don't just kind of go through a list, like a grocery list. You know, you've got the list of stuff you need to do. So you're telling God, okay, here's the list of stuff that I want you to do in my life. And I want you to pray for these people and work in the lives of these people in this way. Conversation means that there are times that we're listening to God. So as we're praying for people, we're also listening. God, what's your heart for this person? What's your heart for these people around me? One of the areas that I want us as a church praying for, uh, for, for us coming up is going to be our Thanksgiving service in two weeks. Here at Mountain View, we're going to pray for everything. I remember my first Sunday here at the end of the service, you know, when we, there's a like, call to action, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to come forward at the front to pray for. Uh, one of my first Sundays there, the thing that we were praying for that day uh, was if you and your, your spouse within your marriage, you're having a hard time getting pregnant, like I want you to come forward and pray for that. And I'm there as a 22-year-old who thought that I understood everything about life, and I'm like, you don't, you don't pray for that? That's weird. God, you know what goes into making babies, and we're supposed to pray for that. And God says, yes, you pray for everything. Remember, heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that gives to me. So you can even pray for stuff like this with me. And so for us as a church, we're praying for our Thanksgiving service, not just because it's going to be amazing, but because we want people to be impacted by God's love for them. We want people to be touched by the gospel and encouraged by Jesus's love for them. This is something that I want us all to get part of. And as you head out today, there's going to be, before you get outside, on your left, there's going to be spaces for you to sign up to pray for an hour next week leading up to our Thanksgiving service because we're bringing God into the equation. It says right away, pray for everyone. So we're praying for the people that we invite to our service. We pray for the people that are going to see the advertisements. We pray for the kids workers and the people who are going to be preparing the meal that day. All these things, if it's imaginable, we're going to pray for it. We're going to pray that setup goes really well that day so that nobody's frazzled by the time first service starts. We're praying for all these things because God tells us to. And he's saying, this is the way that I want you to approach life. And the reason that we pray isn't just that he gives us something to do. He's saying the reason you pray is so much bigger than that because the reason you pray is rooted in who Jesus is. It's not just a to-do list. It's a reflection of God's power on our lives. He says in verse 3, This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. That is the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message that God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to the Gentiles. This message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling the truth. This is, our, this is our response to this. This is the way that God wants to move in our hearts is he wants to take us as men and women that he loves, that he has changed our lives, that he's separated right from wrong. He's forgiven our sins through the Holy Spirit. He's giving us new desires, new power to carry out those desires. He's saying what I want those to be manifested in is a heart for other people. You're praying now for other people. We can't control how anybody responds to anything in our lives, but we can pray how we respond to it. 
We can control how we respond to every situation. And he's saying right now, I want your response to every situation to be one of prayer. And then he explains how in, verse, uh, in the end of verse 1. He says, I want you to ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, give thanks to them, give thanks for them. Man, Jesus' work in our life mobilizes us and sets us up as people who can make a difference in the lives of other people, not by just having the right things to say, not just by effort, like forever working hard for other people, but he says one of the ways that we can make a difference in people's lives is by praying for them, by interceding for them, which means that we're going to take, we're going to move into their situation and ask God, for, ask God to work in them. He says, this is your MO. This is what empowers us to live like Jesus because one of the things that prayer does, one of the reasons that he tells us to pray for situations, pray for people, is that prayer doesn't just move God's hand and kind of puts God into action. What prayer also does is it puts us in the places that God wants us to. A lot of times God will use prayer to change our hearts, to set us up into a different place as a person. That's one of the reasons why, as a church, strategically, we want to take time this next week to pray for the Thanksgiving service, because I want it at the front of our hearts. I want it at the front of our heads, that as we come in in two weeks and see the stuff that's going to happen with the meal after service and, and see people that we don't recognize and, and new people, I want that to be in our heart to create excitement in us, because we know what God has done for us, for those of you who are Christians. You know the value of forgiveness, the inexpressible joy that it is to know that there's a God in heaven who loves you. And we want that to spread to other people. And so he says, pray for people. That's how we get our hearts invested. That church doesn't just become a concert with daycare, but it becomes something that changes our lives to, to change us and mobilize us into action. And then he, he gets specific about the things that we pray for, the people that we pray for. And he says, I want you to pray for government leaders. And the election is on Tuesday. This is perfect timing right here. But he says, I want you to pray for government leaders. And the time that he's writing this in is a time when Christians are already being killed for their faith. So there is no amount of self-serving in Paul whatsoever. He says, I want you to pray for government leaders at a time where his whole group of people, where, where Christians, our brothers and sisters, centuries before us, are already dying for their faith. He says this, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I mean, that quiet life there that he's talking about isn't quiet in volume, it's quiet in disruption. He's saying, I don't want you to be a totally disruptive force. I want you to be somebody who makes the situation around you better. I want you to be an encouragement. I want you to be an honorable person in your society, even though these people that we're praying for have made decisions that are killing Christians. He says, I want you to pray for your government leaders nonetheless. I think this season, uh, this Tuesday for us as, as a country, for us as Americans, like this is a big day because we get to vote. We have a privilege to, to vote for our leaders and the leaders that get stuck in there, even if they're not the people that we chose, even if they're not our first choice of who should run things, we still have an opportunity to pray for them. Billy Graham is a famous pastor evangelist guy who died earlier in the year. And one of the like, nicknames, one of the characteristics that was given to him was he was a friend of the president. And that started back in the 40s with Harry Truman and it went on uh, until he died back in February. And if there was a president, Billy Graham was going to be there for him. He was going to be there to pray for him. He was going to be there to give advice. He was going to be there to, give, to be his friend. And that did not mean that he agreed with absolutely everything that was going on. But he's going to be there to pray for the person. 
I think we can read words like this from Paul that says to pray for your government leaders, and it takes weight. It's not just, like, it's not just happy words. It's words that have depth and, and pain to them, knowing that he has Christian brothers and sisters who have died, and eventually he's going to die for his, face, for his faith at the hands of, of government leaders. He's saying, don't argue, don't fight, pray for them. That's going to be how you fight. That's going to be how you make a difference, is by praying for your government leaders. He says it great, explains, explains the reason why really well in Ephesians 6. He says, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We're not fighting against candidates. We're not fighting against political parties. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And as we look at a country that's been totally divided along political lines and things are farther apart uh, between the two parties than I can remember during my lifetime, we can take these words to heart seeing what Paul is talking about here. That the problem isn't a human. The problem isn't one candidate over the other. The problem is that we live in a fallen world and the devil is going to destroy people. Regardless of what side of the political aisle this is happening on, we live in a world where the devil wants to make people's lives horrible. And so what we do is we pray for our leaders. We pray that they're going to have God's wisdom. We pray that God's will is going to be done in our country, in our day, knowing that the last thing that God needs to accomplish his will is a ballot box, all right? It's not like God, in all of his authority, looks and says, well, I got voted down this time. Let's wait four years and let's do it again. It's not the way that God works. But what we do instead is what we're called to do instead is to do our part, do everything that we can, which means we're going to vote, we're going to vote responsibly, we're going to do the research that we need to do to be able to cast a vote that actually has weight behind it instead of just us guessing. And we're going to put it all in God's hands for God to do what God can do. So, so he says, I want you to pray for your political leaders. I think right now for us in our season at Sunnyside, this is a big thing. Uh, as you walked in, you got one of these cards which says, join us in praying for building permits to be approved quickly and construction to be effective and fast. Uh, the reason that we say that is because uh, to give you like a big bird's eye view on what's going on with this card uh, is back in February, we became aware of a piece of property that was available on Kings Canyon and Bergen, which is between Fowler and Armstrong, two and a half miles east of us. It's a beautiful church and it's an amazing piece of property that we put an offer on uh, that we closed escrow on on July 22nd. And we're looking to move in there in the new year. So what's gone on since then is on the 22nd, we took an offering to raise 29000 $14.87 for us as a church uh, to put toward repairs on that. We've started redoing all the ramps that are going to lead people up to the kids' ministry rooms. We've painted everything, and that's about all that's happened. Um, what's gone on lately is uh, we started filing permits, and that process stopped because somebody retired with our file literally sitting on their desk, and it stayed there. All right? We are the group that fell through the cracks. And we're really happy for our government leaders because after like two months of waiting for this thing to like to get back to us, that we needed some information on what was happening with our building, we called our city councilman and said, hey, can you figure something out with this? Find out what's going on. And th so they did some research on Mountain View Sunnyside's behalf to find out that our file is sitting on a desk somewhere. Literally, as the person walked out and retired, our file stayed there. 
where this hits us as a church is right now we're making two rent payments or two two payments. We're paying rent here, uh, which is a lot of money every week, and we're also making loan payments on our mortgage at Sunnyside. That's a bad place for us to be financially, and we need God to push some papers through. Okay, we, I'm glad that we have to get permits because it's our agreement with the city and with the community around our church that this is a spiritually safe place to be and a physically place, safe place to be, where the building will not cave in on your skull as you're there worshiping. Like, that's a good thing for us to be excited about. Uh, but what we need God to do is to push through the permits a little bit faster than they are. So I've got reminders in my phone to go off every day to pray for a bunch of stuff. I've got one at 9.58, and I've got one at 3.37, because uh, Psalm 37.3, or 73.3, uh, talks about the church growing in the city. I want that to be for us. You can set one for 2.42, which is Job chapter, or verse 2 of chapter 42. See how he did that? Uh, and it says this. It says, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. So we're standing on that promise of Job talking to God, saying that God can do anything, and we're standing on this as a church saying, God, I want you to come through, and I want you to push our permits through. Okay, this situation has gone on longer than we want to. Our date of when we're going to move into the building keeps getting pushed back farther and farther, but what are we not going to do? We're not going to get angry because we're not fueled by anger. That will not last. That will not be good for us individually or for us as a church. We're going to continue to pray that this happens perfectly that our permits get pushed through, that construction is fast and effective, that stuff works right the first time, and we're asking our government leaders to approve our permits so this can move forward fast and we can start making better use of our finances as a church. And it's going to take effort. It takes effort for me every day when I get the alarm to not be angry that, that nothing has moved forward so far as the billing. It's a reminder to trust God, to do life differently, to not just fall into what's normal and have my life look like this, but instead to exert effort to move in a different direction from what I see around me. And to have my approach even to the building be fueled by prayer. The second thing that he challenges us to be different in is around our role as men and women. Because we're going to approach life differently, fueled to serve God and make Jesus look good. And what Paul does here in this next section is he's encouraging us to live our lives so that we're trying to build up godliness in our life. That when people look at you and me, they don't see our physical outside and what that brings to the table. But the things that we do, the way that we live, it's what is what's going to preach the loudest message in our life. It's what's going to be noticed about us. And so first he goes after guys. He speaks to the guys first. And he says, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. He's saying, in, in your ability to get angry, in that fire inside of you that sometimes gets way too hot, that is just normal for how you react. I don't want that to be the case when you come to me. I don't want you to come all angry and bent out of shape sometimes. I want you to come to me with hands lifted up in prayer. Because what does that show? That shows surrender. That's like the universal sign of surrender is you come out of a situation with your hands up. That's I'm not trying to fight. And so as we pray together, as we pray with people, he's saying, I want your hands to be lifted up in surrender, in holiness. You don't need to grow in your ability to force things or to fight things. I want you to grow in your ability to worship me and to live your life based on everything that I've done for you. So he challenges the men in that. And then he challenges the women. Verse 9, he says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. 
This is a day where, cult, where a temple prostitution is a big deal. If you want your crops to grow, then you go to these pagan temples and you have sex with a temple prostitute because that's going to make your crops grow was, was their idea. And he's saying, no, 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 in that, I want it to look totally different in God's church. It's going back to the shoe rule. He's saying this is going to look different when you come into my house compared to a different house because the women there are going to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing, wearing gold pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted should, to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Saying as you grow, as life happens, as everything else changes about us, the thing that shouldn't change is our, abit- our appeti- attitude and appetite for holiness. Saying I want that to grow in you. As you get older, I want that to continue to get bigger for your heart, for me to grow is what God's saying. I want you to grow in godliness. And then he gives some instructions. He gave, gave the thing to the men. We're talking about surrender, hands lifted up. He gave the thing to women about, about letting our good deeds shine and be modest in our appearance. And then he starts to talk about how these two are supposed to work together. From the very beginning of, beginning of creation, God made the world, God made the animals, God made the plants, and then God made humans. And the first thing that he made was Adam. And he said, Adam, your job is to care for everything that I create. And even before sin entered the world, when everything was still perfect, God looked at Adam and said, it's not complete, it's not good that you're alone because you are incomplete on your own. And so God makes a helper for Adam. The same word that God uses for helper there in the original language is the same word for the Holy Spirit. It's going to be that thing to do life alongside you. And so God has the caretaker of all creation, Adam, and he prepares for him a woman named Eve who's going to be his completion, who's going to be his helpmate. And through them, uh, God brings life into the world. And through them, they're made totally differently. I mean, Adam has seen everything. And if you read the Genesis account, the first book of the Bible, the first two chapters of the Bible, everything is very cut and dry. Day one, God made this, and it was good. Day two, God made this, and it was good. Day three, blah, blah, blah. When Adam sees Eve, when he sees his wife, when he sees the woman that God has given to him, in all of her differences from man, he breaks from like just the facts to a poem. He starts singing to God. Because this thing that he's seen is so much different and so much more beautiful than he is. He says, there's a reason to be excited here. And within those differences, that's where God wants us to live. Because as God creates humans, he said there's one difference between the two. And that's that that Adam is a man and that Eve is a woman. And that through those differences, there's a different life, uh, there's different roles that each of them are supposed to live. In the New Testament, Paul, he begins to talk about the relationship between husband and wife. He says that, husband, you're to play the role of Jesus. You're the one who's in control. You're the one who's responsible. When Adam and Eve both sin and God shows up to figure out what's going on, he says, Adam, where are you? Because he's saying you're the one in charge. You're the one who's going to be held responsible. This does not mean that Adam follows Eve around and dictates every decision for her. That's horrible leadership. He's saying, but instead, within the church, within creation, within marriages, husbands, you're to lead with sacrificial, loving, service leadership. It's not to tell your wife, this is what you need to do at all times. He's saying your job is to lower yourself as much as as possible, taking responsibility for everything, being the first one to sacrifice so that your wife and everyone around you can flourish. 
And so from that, Paul begins to talk about women and men. And he does it in a way that's completely scandalous. That the people in that day read this and said, this guy is nuts, he is crazy, this is not the way that we treat women. And we do it the same way, but it's from the other side. So this is what it says in, uh, in 11. It says, women should learn quietly and submissively. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That is where it got scandalous because he says that women should learn. In this day, women and kids in the church or outside of the church, women and the kids outside of the church were property. And there are still places in the world where the church has not yet come where women and children are still viewed as property. And the thing that is so scandalous and, and different about this is Paul is saying, I want women to learn of God. I want them to learn about God. I want, them to, I want the church to be a place where women can flourish in using their gifts, in using the ability to lead and, and to, to teach and to make much of who Jesus is in their lives. I, lo- I love it. You, you look at the way that Jesus interacts with women. You look at the way that Paul interacts with women. And I think that every woman in the world should be a Christian because nobody protected and elevated women the way that Jesus did. I mean, when Jesus rose from the dead, the first person he appeared to was a woman. That, like, that's unheard of. You, if you want to be relevant in that day, the first person you appear to is not a woman, but Jesus recognized the value in her. Jesus recognized the protection, that she's not just property. Jesus calls her daughter. There's different times in, in his life where he would come to someone and he would call him daughter. And a woman, in, in a place where everybody else is treating him as property, Jesus talks to them. Jesus invites them into a relationship with him. Jesus gives them ownership and a place. I think of leading with my own wife. Uh, we love to lead life groups together. I'm the one who's responsible, which means I'm the one uh, who's going to make a lot of the decisions with her input. Uh, but if you're ever in a life group with us, you know one thing about me, and that's I don't talk very much in life groups. Because these are, these are opportunities for discussion. We believe that that's the place where the church goes from rows to a circle. And we want people to talk in this. And my wife is super gifted on getting other people to talk. Like for the last 10, 15 minutes, it's just been me talking up here. I'm not very gifted at getting other people to talk. That's where Anna is totally gifted. And I love leading with her because she is super strong at getting other people to talk about creating an environment where other people can share what's going on in their lives. And I'm not. So I am so glad to be able to step back and let her lead in the church where she's gifted. Two years ago, we were in Africa uh, doing missions in Kenya and Uganda. And we got there thinking that our trip was going to be one thing, and it turned into a lot of teaching and preaching, uh, which I love to do. I'm totally down with that. Although speaking through a translator is really hard for me because you have to say one sentence and then wait for it to be translated. And as you can probably tell, I don't wait very well. Uh, But... But we're looking down our team about who else likes to preach, and it's me, and it's a 17-year-old girl who loves to preach, who, who has a fire inside of her to tell about the good things that Jesus has done. So a lot of the preaching in Africa was done by me and the 17-year-old girl. And it's not just because, oh, well, it's third world country, they can get third world uh, preachers. No, it's because it's somebody who's gifted and filled by God to go out and spread the message of who Jesus is. Today, here, as we're here at church, we want women leading alongside men everywhere that they can. We want people functioning in their gifts as God has given them the ability to serve. We look at kids' church right now, which is largely taught by women because that's where God has gifted a lot of our women to serve, is kids' church. There are guys in there, but the overwhelming majority of people in there are women because they've got a better spot for kids. They've got a better ability to teach them than a lot of us guys do. And we don't subjugate the women there because, well, it's just kids. They, they don't need a good teacher. No, no, no. 
They're training up the next generation on what it is to love God and follow God. So we want our best teachers there. It just so happens that a lot of them in our church are women. And there are definitely guys who teach there too. But if we look at just like who, what's the majority, it's women. I want us to be a church that functions uh, by people empowered with their gifts to serve. And that means we want women serving all across the board. And part of the man's responsibility is that we're going to be the ones who take the ultimate authority over things and allow and equip and enable other people to serve. So while the lead pastor role will always be a man, we want women serving everywhere else. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He says women should learn quietly and submissively. And again, that word quiet isn't one of volume quiet. It's of of honor quiet. This calm force that, that is lifting others up and is building others up at every opportunity. He says that's the way that we should live, live with our government leaders, where we're the friend of the leader. He's saying, I want you to be a friend of the teacher. He says, I don't let women teach men or have authority over men. Let them listen quietly, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. He's saying, guys, where are you? As women lead, you need to, as, as women are operating in their gifts, you need to be there to protect. You need to be there to be responsible for what's going on. And in all this, we see that, that Paul, even in distinctions like the difference between man and woman, he's pro-family, he's pro-marriage, and he's pro-children. And he says something here that we look at and we think, man, this is different. What are you going at here? Uh, but in his day, it made a lot of sense. He says, 15, he says, but women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. In these days, the church would grow because outside of the church, women were viewed uh, as property and, and as a possession. They weren't viewed as daughters of the king. So the church would grow because people would, rege- would abandon their daughters. They'd put them on the lake beds and then leave because it was too much property than they could care for. And so Christians would come in, Christian women would come in, and they'd rescue the daughters, and they'd raise them like their own. And so the church was filled with young girls because they had been brought to life in the church, literally life in the church. He's saying, I want you to continue to do that. As you're more gifted in those areas than men are, continue to function in your gifting. And as you grow in your godliness, what's going to be apparent is the work of Jesus to save your soul and give you a new way to live as you exhibit faith, love, holiness, and modesty. He's saying, I want men and women to be leading together, to be loving together. And the husband, you take the role, not as somebody who's domineering, but somebody who's going to lead in honoring, who's going to lead in sensitive, gentle, loving spiritual leadership, not only in your business, but also in marriage and in the church. We should be a place that's the safest for all people to come, especially the difference between men and women. That's something that we should be broadcasting out. That's what Jesus leads us in. That's what Paul's looking at. And as we do that, as we do that, we're going to be a place that makes Jesus look good. As we're functioning in the areas where, where we've been created to, to do life and created to, uh, to honor God, we're giving glory to God. We're giving glory to God as this Tuesday as we vote and then as we pray for the results and, and we live peaceful lives regardless of who wins. We're going to continue to do that as we pray for people to join us on Thanksgiving and and as we invest in the lives of non-Christians around us, that's what we're going to do. 
And as Paul is talking about making right things that have gone wrong in, in this church, we want to continuously open our hearts to Jesus and say, okay, what do you want to do in my life? Where do you want to pull me to, to exert more effort to live in a way that makes you look good in every single situation? And as we do that, God's going to give us opportunities. Opportunities to make him look good in every situation of our life, even if it's something awkward uh, that makes us be different from those around us. He says, you do that, and I'm going to come through. And I, you're going to see me move more than you ever imagined. Let's worship and pray.